0: We spoke about the fatherhood of God in explanation of the Holy Trinity. Now, in this fourth talk, I want to speak about the Son and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons and as consubstantial with the Father. That they are distinct divine persons, they're consubstantial with the Father. What we're doing here is giving various evidence to show that the early heretics were wrong in claiming that, like in modalism, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are merely other names for God the Father. That in God there are three distinct persons that we can pray to, and they are different. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. They're all operative in the redemption, in our salvation, in grace, and creation and so forth, but in different ways. And so we have a relationship to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So in this talk then, I want to move on to explain a little bit more about what the Church's teaching is of the Son as a distinct divine person, and the Holy Spirit as a distinct divine person. A number of heresies have denied, as we saw, or questioned, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. They said they're just modes, other names, synonyms for the Father. Others have asserted that they are indeed distinct persons, but that they're not divine persons. That was Arius in the Macedonians, that they're creatures of God. There was a time when they did not exist. So I'd like to ask you, you know, what do you think about this from the catechetical instruction that you've had or what you've heard preached in church? Are, in fact, the Son, namely Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, really divine persons, distinct from the Father, but subsisting in the same substance? Are you able to pray convincingly to all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the liturgy does, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So are you able to pray convincingly to all three and to be always aware that you are praying to one God. In order to bring out this difficult idea, tradition tells us that the great Saint Patrick, when he went to Ireland and preached there to convert those wild kings and people that were there, that he used the shamrock as a visible symbol to explain to those people what he meant by the Trinity. Because you have a shamrock, it's one leaf with three protrusions, so in a way, it's a way of representing three and one. One leaf, three protrusions. Others have used the triangle as a symbol for God. We have that on the back of our dollar bill, the triangle. It's one figure, but it has three points. So that's one way, in a very limited human way, of trying to bring out something that's one and three at the same time. The triangle or the shamrock. What is the teaching of the Catholic Church? on this matter. The church teaches that there are three persons in one God. This means that the Son and the Holy Spirit are persons distinct from the Father, but that they are God just as He is God, since they are united in the same divine essence or being. And this is what's so difficult for us to grasp, that there's three in one, but it's not a contradiction because there are three in one sense three persons and one in another. If we were saying that they were three in both senses, then we'd have three gods. And there's no indication of that in the scripture or the tradition of the church. The church worships one God in three persons. Now for scriptural confirmation of this belief, we can turn first of all to St. John's Gospel. In the prologue there, 1st chapter verses 1 to 18, those of you who have your Bible, you might take it out and take a look at St. John's Gospel. Now, as I go over this, John writes about the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So according to John, the Word is not an attribute or power of God. It's not as if it's some activity or some power of God. The Word is a person. And we call the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And this is indicated when he says that the Word was with God. One person is with another. If it's just a stick or an animal or something like that, it really wouldn't make that much sense to say he was with God. He also says that the Word came into his own domain, in verse 11, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Both of these expressions can refer only to a person not to some divine attribute, like wisdom, or goodness, or power, or mercy, or something like that. Now the Word is not only God, but is also a different person from God the Father. This follows from the fact that the Word was with God, and also from the identification of the Word with the only begotten Son of the Father, in verse 14, in the same section where St. John says, We saw his glory, the glory that is his, as the only Son of the Father. John also says, And the Word was God. This means that the Word is divine. The true deity of the Word is also implied by certain divine attributes that are given to him by Scripture. John ascribes creation to him. In verse 3, Through him, all things came to be. So all things were created by the Word. Only God can create. Therefore, the Word is God. In the beginning was the Word. So this indicates the eternity of the Word. The Word always existed. There was no time when the Word did not exist. In addition to St. John's prologue, many other passages from the Bible could be cited to prove the personality and the divinity of the Son of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the personality and the divinity. Those two points are very important. It's also an essential part of Catholic belief that the Holy Spirit is a real person. And not just another name for some of the activities of God the Father, or an indication of the power of the Father, or something like that. the Holy Spirit is a divine person, a distinct divine person. He's listed on the same level in baptismal formula, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, so he has to be on the same level as the prior two, that is the Father and the Son. That's brought out very clearly by this Trinitarian formula that we use in baptism in Matthew 28, 19. In this very important text, The Holy Spirit is ranked then on the same level with the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are divine. The Holy Spirit is listed on the same level with the Father and the Son. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is also divine and also a person. The Holy Spirit is given the personal title of paraclete by our Lord in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of St. John's Gospel, which means the helper or the advocate or the representative of himself you'll find that in john 14:16 14, 14:26 14, and 15:26 in addition personal qualities are ascribed to the holy spirit such as teaching the truth in 16:13 and also he said to install the bishops of the church by saint luke in the acts of the apostles chapter 20 Verse 28, now the Holy Spirit is not just a real person. He could be a person and be, let's say, a creature. But the Holy Spirit is also distinct from the Father and the Son. And this is proved by the Trinitarian formula of baptism, which we've already cited. It is also indicated by the appearance of the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan under that special symbol of the dove. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You find that in Matthew 3 verses 16 and 17. Moreover, in his discourse at the Last Supper, Jesus distinguishes between the Holy Spirit as one who is sent and the Father and the Son who send him in John 14, 16 and 26 and 15, 26. So, The Holy Spirit does personal things, indication of the fact that he's a person. He does personal things, like he teaches, he gives witness, he speaks, he testifies to the truth, he glorifies the Son. And the Holy Spirit is said to be sent. In his discourse at the Last Supper, Jesus distinguishes between the Holy Spirit as one who is sent, and the Father and the Son who send him. Now, I think we ought to take a look at those texts. If you have your Bible, you might get that out. I'm looking at John 14:16 for our first text. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. So here he's called the counselor. It means advocate, something like that. In verse 26, Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit, kind of like a second advocate, takes the place of Jesus. He's going to teach the disciples and call to mind everything that Jesus taught them. That's why they were able to write the New Testament. That's why they were able to write the Bible, because the Holy Spirit was active after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, in calling to mind on the part of the disciples those things that Jesus had said and that Jesus had done. And then you have an important text in 1526. Again in St. John's Gospel, Jesus says, But when the Counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me So he bears witness to Jesus, only a person can do that. These are indications from St. John's Gospel that what Jesus is talking about is the third person in the Blessed Trinity whom he will send upon the Church as the Spirit of Truth after his resurrection and ascension into heaven and glorification at the right hand of the Father. Now another point then, in Trinitarian theology we try and show that the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons and that they're divine persons, so that they're on the same level as the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we saw in that great Athanasian creed of the 5th, 6th century. So the Holy Spirit, then, is also a divine person, not just like a human person or an angel. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, which means, as the Athanasian creed says, and other creeds also, that he's co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. We saw that in the creed from the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. So for proof of this, we again turn to the Trinitarian formula of baptism, in which the Holy Spirit is mentioned as equal to the Father and to the Son, who are truly God. Another proof of the divinity of the Holy Spirit is the fact that the New Testament ascribed divine attributes to the Holy Spirit, divine characteristics, divine attributes. The Holy Spirit possesses the fullness of knowledge and he teaches all the truth and he searches the innermost secrets of God. Only that which is in God can search the innermost secrets of God. So in 1 Corinthians 2.10, St. Paul writes to the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit searches the innermost secrets of God. Also the divine power of the Holy Spirit is revealed in the incarnation of God in Luke 1.35, a text that I've already cited once, and I will cite it again, because it brings in all three persons indicating their divinity. He's the one who causes the incarnation. The Holy Spirit overshadows the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The child to be born is Jesus of Nazareth. The Most High is God the Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit in order to effect this. This is something on the divine level, so this is an indication that the Holy Spirit is a divine person on the same level, so we can say, co-equal with the Father and the Son. We find something similar in the miracle of Pentecost in the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verses 2 to 4, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in the upper room like flames of fire and enlightens them and gives them power to speak in power and to heal and to preach the Lord Jesus. So the biblical teaching of three persons in God can be reconciled with the same biblical doctrine of the oneness of the divine nature only if the three persons subsist in one single nature or being. They have to all possess the same nature or being in order to be one God. So this is called the numerical unity of the divine being. Numerical unity meaning one. It's not like three persons when you have three human beings, three substances. No, you have numerical identity of one substance and three persons. This numerical unity of the divine being is indicated in the Trinitarian formulas that I gave you from Matthew on baptism and the one at mass from 2 Corinthians 13, 13, and also the descent of Holy Spirit and the voice of the Father on Jesus when he's baptized in the Jordan by St. John the Baptist. Jesus explicitly declared the numerical unity of his divine nature with that of the Father, when he said in John 10:30, the Father and I are one. We have that wonderful text also in John 14, when St. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus, maybe a little bit perturbed, says to Philip, he says, Philip, have you been with me all this time? You've been with me so long and you don't realize that he who sees me sees the Father? And he goes on to say that I and the Father are one. So He who sees me sees the Father. So that's his identity in nature with the Father. Two distinct persons, but the same substance, same nature. So in order to express this idea, this is very important in Catholic theology, and it brings out the difference between Christianity, those who hold Trinitarian theology, Catholics and Orthodox, and many Protestants, and as contrasted to the Jewish belief and the Muslim belief, in order to express the numerical unity of the essence of God, the Church says that the Son and the Holy Spirit are one in being with the Father, or, as we used to say in the Creed years ago, consubstantial with the Father. One in being with the Father, consubstantial with the Father, mean the same thing. This is a phrase, a word, that was worked out by the fathers at the first council, the Council of Nicaea, where St. Athanasius was very active and they were involved in, refuting Arius, as I said, because Arius denied that the son is consubstantial with the father. Now they have a fancy Greek word for this, but it's been very much used in English, so I don't hesitate to make use of it. It's called homoousion. Homoousion is translated in Latin as consubstantial. We have the English word consubstantial. Recently we used the English expression one in being with, as we say at the Creed on Sunday Mass. That means homoousion. He's one in being with the Father. They share in the same divine essence. Consubstantial means that they have the same substance with each other. This is a mark of Catholic orthodoxy. And that's why it's in the creeds ever since the time of Nicaea. It wasn't in the Apostles' Creed. When you say the Apostles' Creed, when you say the rosary, you won't find that word because they didn't have that word at that time. That word was developed, the theological idea of it, in the early fourth century, and it was put in the creed by the fathers of the Council of Nicaea, even though it's not in Scripture. You won't find that word in consubstantial in the Scripture, homoousion, but that word expresses the reality that is expressed in Scripture, saying that the Son is consubstantial with the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, is consubstantial with the Father and the Son. Meaning that they all share in the same divine substance, the same divine essence. Now, I realize that some of the ideas and expressions connected with this Catholic doctrine of the Holy Trinity are difficult to understand. As I said in one of the talks, I think that's probably one reason why a lot of priests hesitate to preach about this from the pulpit in church on Sunday because of the difficulty of the subject and they are afraid of making basic errors or something like that so they tend to shy away from it. So some of these concepts are difficult. So as a help, I would suggest that those of you who are taking this course recite and pray the creed that we profess at Sunday Mass. It would also help to look up the passages in Scripture that we've mentioned and to meditate upon them because there you'll find this notion of the consubstantiality and the homoousion as expressed in the creed that we say at Mass is called the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. It is based upon the Creed of Nicaea, but there were things left out of Nicaea that caused future problems and that was completed then by the First Council of Constantinople in 381. So the profession of the faith of the Church since 381 has been that creed of the Council of Constantinople I. That's the one that we recite at every Sunday Mass. And if we just take a look at that, you see that the creeds are always divided into three parts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, basically. And then they conclude with a few things about the Church. But there's basically the three parts to bring out the fact that they're in God, there are three distinct persons who are divine, and they're on the same level as we see from the baptism formula. I repeat that over and over again, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So in the creed that we say at Mass, we say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things both visible and invisible. That's what we say about the Father, not too much there about the Father. Most of it has to do with the Son, because the Son became man, was incarnate, he has a history. He was born, He lived, He preached, He worked miracles, He died, He rose again from the dead, He instructed His disciples, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. So we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Remember I said that? The only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all time. So there never was a time when the Son was not being generated. That's an eternal activity of the Father generating the Son. And in order to indicate his divinity, they've said light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Here's that word, consubstantial with the Father. That's extremely important. Or well, I think most of the translations now say one and being with the Father. That means the same thing. That's the homoousion, coming from the Council of Nicaea in 325. Then it goes on to say what he did in his life and so forth, and then you come down to the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, he's called Lord. All right, that's the same thing as Yahweh, that same thing as God the Father. He proceeds from the Father, he's not a son, he proceeds from the Father, is adored and honored together with the Father and the Son, so he receives divine adoration, just like the Father and the Son. He's the one who spoke through the prophets. So he revealed through the prophets. Then it goes on to say various things about the belief in the church. So that's the makeup then of the creed that we say at Mass, on a much shorter form, the Apostles' Creed, that we say when we begin the rosary. So there you have a brief presentation then of the Son and the Holy Spirit Just to wrap this up, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons from the Father and that they are divine. Those are the key, that they're distinct persons and they're divine. We indicated some of the passages from Scripture and the teaching of the church, the creeds. So this is what's called defined dogma of the church. This is the orthodox teaching of the church, that anyone who wants to become a member of the church must believe this, that God is three in one, Three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.